How many of you have ever been on like a pontoon boat or something before? Okay, so many of you guys have been on some kind of boat or something along those lines. And if you've ever gotten a bad tank of gas in one of those things or too much water gets in it or uh, some trash gets in it, what ends up happening? Yeah, it starts sputtering and it doesn't work. It doesn't want to crank. The same happens in our car. It just happens less frequently because it's not submerged in water. Um, and so it can just suck up trash. And this is one of the things that, that I, w I didn't grow up on the river or anything like that, but Lauren's parents have a pontoon boat. And, and I've been on it a couple of times when that propeller just, you know, it just kind of end and sucks something up into it. And, and immediately you can tell something is wrong. And, and so last week, Pastor Mark, not Pastor Mark, he's Mark, um, <laughs> but he, he preached like a Pastor Mark. Yeah, he did. He did a great job last week. He ended our series on the I am statement. So we went through seven weeks of the I am statements where Jesus claimed to be divine. He claimed to be the son of God, but he showed us in each and every way how God truly, he desires to, to have this relationship with us and the things that he provides for us. He spoke last week about pruning and that one of the quotes that I thought was just so um, great, hard to hear and, and those kinds of things was the fact that the vine dresser is never closer to the branch than when he is doing what? Pruning, when he's cutting. And over the past couple of weeks, it, just to be honest with you, church family, this has been a time of, of pruning and revelation for myself. Um, some people that I know and love, including Chris and and Ryan have, have come to me and, and helped me realize that there was, um, there, there was some sin in my life. And one of the ways that it manifested itself is in careless speech and careless talk. And a couple of weeks ago, if you were in here, you probably, you may remember this. I made a, an offhand joke and comment about the Titanic. And as the Lord really worked on my heart after that, um, I really began to be convicted about it. And, and a couple of people that I know and love approached me about it. And um, I honestly felt like I made a misstep. I made a mistake in that. Paul says in Ephesians 4.29 that let no corruptible talk enter your mouth and said, instead speak in such a way that, that honors Christ. And as a pastor, if if I've got some stuff in my engine, whether you know it or not, it affects every single one of you. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I failed you guys in leading you properly. And so I'm asking for forgiveness. And at, the, at its very best, it was an unwise joke to make. At its worst, it was sinful and harmful, and 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 I, I just want you guys to know that I'm sorry. And um, as as your pastor and trying to lead in a Christ-like way, one thing that that you need to know is I'm imperfect, and and I need grace. And the Lord is moving and working on my heart and in my life. But every time that. Uh, this is the reason James says, 
don't, don't necessarily desire to be a teacher, right? Because when, when, when you're in front of people and God puts you in these spaces, a, a misstep is a big deal. And it infects everything around it. And so I led you poorly. And that's an area that God is prayerfully working and moving. And I was not going to let, as much as I wanted to, I was not going to let, by God's grace, allow shame and fear to keep me from doing the right thing. So often in our lives, we allow shame and fear to prevent us from doing the things that we know to be the right thing. Um, And so, I'm sorry. Know that I love you all. As we move forward, um, I just ask for your grace and for your forgiveness. But I don't want to dwell on that for too long. And for those that are new in the room, I'm sorry for making this really awkward um, for you. (laughs) I I try to use humor as a way that heals and loves um, and makes people feel comfortable. But the double-edged sword of that is that it can also hurt and that it can um, it can bring about things that are unholy as well. And so I'm sorry for that. Turn with me if you have your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 23. And we're going to have a moment in as we look to the cross moving into Easter. We're going to look where Jesus demonstrates and proves his love and worthiness for us to follow him. Even in the the most difficult moments of our lives, we're going to look to Jesus on the cross as he gives his seven last words or seven last sayings. Um, And so we begin this morning as uh, in his first saying in Luke chapter 23. And so when you get there, it's verse 32, say word. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, meaning Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Here's what I want us to to take from from this text and this saying from from Jesus. If you don't catch anything else, this is what I want you to get. Jesus begins his final words on the cross by revealing God's heart, which is that of love. So if you're taking notes, this reveals God's heart for you, which is one of love and his desire for us which is reconciliation. Jesus' cry on the cross reveals God's love for us, his heart for us, his true nature towards us, which is disposition one of love, 
and his desire for us, which is reconciliation with himself. And the first thing that we see in this cry is that Jesus is praying for others' good. He's praying for their good, and he's also still continues to intercede for us for our good as well. So looking at, at verse 32, it says, Two others who were criminals were led away to put to death with him. So there were two criminals alongside Jesus that were being put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. So after giving this prophecy in Luke, uh, and just the thing that immediately preceded us, the text that immediately preceded us, Jesus turned and moved along the road of sorrow to a place called the skull. And Scholars debate whether it was a place that looked like a skull because of a rock formation or was it just a place of death. Most likely, it was a place outside of the city to a, that was a well-known place where you can pass by that people would spectate in these essentially ritual killings, these executions. So Golgotha would have been outside of the city walls and along a public highway. Mark 15, 25 tells us that Jesus would have begun the crucifixion at about 9 a.m. that morning. So everything that happens with the trial and, and leading up to the scourging and leading up to the crucifixion itself would have happened between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. And by the time it's 9 a.m., Jesus is beginning to be crucified alongside two criminals. In fact, in the middle of the two criminals. Meanwhile, the disciples, if you remember the story, the disciples had fled, right? Jesus was surrounded by no friends, only enemies. And that's why the text so uniquely and vividly describes the people that were surrounding Jesus at this point. Look at, at how they describe two others who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. Who else was with him? Jesus cried this, but they, verse uh, in 34, they cast lots to divide his garments. The people stood by watching. So there were spectators that were scoffing at him and watching this crucifixion, this public execution. And then it says the, the soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and dividing his garments as a fulfillment of prophecy saying if you could save if you can if you're the king of the Jews save yourself there was an inscription that they had put over him to essentially further mock him the people that surrounded Jesus were were even if they didn't fully know what they were doing they were all enemies to Jesus they were not friends all of Jesus' friends had fled. So Jesus is nailed to the cross in the morning as the central focus being the center point between two other criminals, meaning that Jesus was symbolic of the most criminal of criminals. His feet would have been nailed together at the ankles on the beam and lifted up and nailed in either his wrists or his hands this is the most gruesome form of death that mankind has ever developed, to be quite honest with you. Most likely over a period of days, people would die not from pain or any other source other than asphyxiation. 
because they couldn't breathe because they would, the way they did it is they would have to lift up on the, essentially the, the, the cross, the, the, the nail that was uh, at their feet and lift up to catch air. Blood would fill their lungs. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus cries out to his father and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's not a prayer that, that we're accustomed to, is it? Quite frankly, that's not a prayer that I'm, I don't know, that's a prayer that I could pray. Is that a prayer in your heart right now that you, you think, man, the, the people that I feel like are attacking me, the people that I would consider my enemies, those are the people that, that I'm going and interceding to them, to God the Father for, on their behalf, even in the midst of all of that is, that is going on in the midst of the scourging and mocking and jeering and shaming, Jesus begins by saying, Father, forgive them. And all this, Jesus reveals something incredible. And he reveals the source by which he can pray this. And that is his beautiful, trusting, eternal relationship with God the Father. In that moment... Jesus would have trusted something. We all trust something in every moment of our lives, but we get to choose that which we are going to trust in. Jesus, instead of taking action himself, which as the Son of God he had full capability of doing, he could have called down a legion of angels, he could have saved himself, but beloved Jesus chose not to save himself so that his atoning work would be complete and you and I can be truly forgiven of the things that we have known about and the things in our lives that, that we were truly ignorant of. He knows and is in deep relationship with the Father. He's showing all of his enemies something that which they don't have, including the religious leaders. He's praying this as a model for their good on their behalf. Father, forgive them. Now, who is the them? That's an important question, right? Does this cover all of the universal sin for, uh, for the Roman soldiers, for the people that are watching? Who is the them? Some scholars limit that to meaning this was specifically for the Roman soldiers who had truly no idea of really who this Jesus was. I, I tend to think it may be a little bit more expanded. I, I do believe that Jesus is seeking their forgiveness for this one sin, but it does not, as what we find in the rest of the gospels is that forgiveness is um, paid for by Jesus, but it must be applied through repentance and faith. And we see the fruit of this prayer in Luke 23, 47. So look down just a little bit further. Now when the centurion, who was a Roman, saw what had taken place, he does something very different from everyone else, doesn't he? He saw what had taken place and he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Jesus' prayer was applied and fulfilled for this Roman centurion that would have watched that day. 
what we find is Jesus reveals their great need and our great need for reconciliation, for forgiveness, to know the Father, to know his love, and to experience that this was an act of pure, undeserved grace in their life. And quite frankly, it gives hope to us all. Because if Jesus has a heart and love for the people that were literally crucifying him, and he's praying for them, then I believe that even the most heinous crimes and things, sins that we commit, we can come before the Father and confess and be forgiven because of what Jesus has done. We find here that Jesus prayed this for their good and to show that forgiveness was possible. Not just for them, but for us. So how, why else would Jesus pray this prayer? He prays it for their good, but as in everything that Jesus prays, he also prayed it for God's glory. In his prayer, he reveals three things about who he is as God and who God the Father is. And the first one is this. He reveals his glorious control, his omniscience, his all-knowingness, his all-power. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. And in doing so, he was actually fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 53, 12, which says this, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. transgressors. So this was something that had been foreknown, even by Jesus as the eternal son of God, that he was in control and, and this, he knew exactly what he wanted and needed to do. God was in control even in the midst of total chaos and what seemed like evil had won the day. Where this sinless, innocent man was put up as the criminal of all criminals instead of Barabbas, who was an actual insurrectionist, was an actual criminal. And even says, for they know not what they're doing. Even in that moment, Jesus knows the intricate details of their motives and also shows that God knows and discerns the depth of our heart and motives too and intercedes on our behalf. God is in control. God knows us, but he doesn't use that against us. He desires through that to bring us into better intimacy with him. God, you don't have anything to hide from God. You can't hide from God. But again, unlike Adam and Eve, who did try to hide from God, God called out to Adam and Eve, not because he didn't know where they were at, but to invite them, re-invite them into this relationship of restoration and of love. What your sin and what all the circumstances of our life will tell us about God is that in these moments when, it's, when you've messed up, in these moments where you've got to get in front of 150 people and, and own your sin, you're like, I can't come back from this. Shame tells us these lies that there's no grace for you. There's no forgiveness for you. Jesus' death wasn't good enough for you. It may be for them, but it's not for you. 
And in that moment, Jesus shows us that he knows us and he's calling us into himself. His heart is one of forgiveness. So we see his glorious control, he knows, but we also see his glorious love. We see his glorious love. This shows us that Jesus is willing, waiting, desiring to bring forgiveness and reconciliation in our life because he loves us. He loves you. The greatest lie that we can tell ourselves is that God is against us. The greatest lie that we can believe is God is not for us. That even as a believer, we've, we've walked away, we've, we've traveled a path that we didn't expect to go down, didn't desire to go down, but because of circumstances have chosen to go down and we feel far from him. And then we're too embarrassed to, to come back. But all along, Jesus is saying that I, I love you and I desire this relationship, this restoration. Forgiveness was in fact, was the very reason Jesus was on the cross. And he shows that as he prays this for them. And then we see his glorious grace. We see his glorious grace in a way that, that is mind-boggling, quite frankly. Jesus seeks forgiveness in this prayer, as we talked about, for his enemies. Not for his friends. And in so doing, Jesus fulfills the very thing that he taught in Matthew 5 and 6 that the kingdom life is to be lived. You remember Jesus calling the people there in that moment. What did he tell them to do? He said, pray for your enemies, right? In this moment, Jesus models for us and shows us that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, that was the position and time that Jesus came for us and died for us. It wasn't in our perfection, but it was when we needed him most. It was in our ugliest point. So Jesus seeks this forgiveness for his enemies. And in fact, he's dying for that forgiveness too, even when he didn't have to. That's grace. Something that we receive, life, reconciliation, Love that we don't deserve. God desires to pour his grace into our lives. So Jesus prays for God's glory, to reveal who God is. But not only that, he prays for our instruction. And we've talked about this kind of a little bit. We've kind of bounced around this idea, but I want to make it clear what Jesus is making known to us today. The things that if you take away any of these points, these are the ones that you need to walk away with. The first one is this. And Jesus in this prayer reminds us of our great need. And Jesus praying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, naturally shows us that there is something wrong, right? This is what C.S. Lewis has to say on it. Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of 
and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. Jesus is reminding us of our, not just our one-time need for reconciliation, but he's modeling for us and helping us understand of our continual need for an application of this grace. When he begins to prune us, when we feel the fatherly discipline that Hebrews talks about, Jesus is inviting us and says, remember your need. You are not self-sufficient. And when we believe that we are, we begin to grow much further from him. But Jesus doesn't leave us in our great need. What he shows us is that he wants us to know that we're deeply loved. Christianity has nothing to say for anyone that believes they're perfect and fine and don't, doesn't have anything, any brokenness, any problems, that believe they've got everything right. It has nothing to say to them. But for people that know they have a great need, who recognize it, Christianity is everything. Because it says, yes, you are in great need, but there is a God who loves you and is supplied to meet that need. Not that you have to to come and work your way, that you have to pretty yourself up to come to church on a Sunday to meet God, that you've you've got to do these several lists, you know, you've got to just... You don't have to do those things. He wants us to know that we're deeply loved. Bill Mount said it this way, it was the power of love, not nails, that kept him on the cross. The power of love, not nails, that kept him on the cross. In Jesus' prayer, beloved, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. He's for you. Yes, you have great need, and you will continually have great need. But that's okay because that's where he meets us. He meets the needs of the needy. And in the midst of this, he shows us that he meets our need for forgiveness and reconciliation. We said God's heart is one of love and that his desire for us is one of forgiveness and reconciliation. That's why he prays this prayer, Father, forgive them. This passage shows God's ability to forgive because of what Jesus has done, because it was paid for. Not that he just forgets it, but that he's applied that debt to Jesus. And that's why it was actually apropos that Jesus, even though he was the sinless, innocent son of God, was the one in the middle because he was the one that ended up taking on the full wrath of God for us. He became a criminal so that we might be forgiven. Some of you guys are wrestling in here today. I wrestle, even, you know, in the midst of the confession, I wrestle like, am I truly forgiven? You may wrestle with that in different sins in your life. You go to God and you run to him and you're like, you know, I feel like I'm doing what I need to do. Jesus, am I really forgiven? Beloved, if Jesus prays this for them, he's certainly not praying any worse for you, right? His forgiveness extends to you. But finally, 
Jesus always calls us to action. And the, the way I want to end this is that he calls us to follow his example. He calls us to follow his example. He prays this prayer so that we might be like him. Little Christ, in a world of war, in a world of anxiety, in a war, in a world that, that just constantly is rupturing relationships. He wants us to follow an example. And this is where the rubber meets the road for Christianity. I go back to C.S. Lewis because he says it in a way in mere Christianity that, that I can't. It is laid down, and this will be on your screen, it is laid down in the Christian rule, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Because in Christian morals, thy neighbor includes thy enemy. And we come up against this terrible duty of forgiving our enemies. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. As we had during the war. This was written and spoken about during World War II. And then to mention the subject at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. It is not that people think it is too high and difficult a virtue. It is that they think it is hateful and contemptible because it's an injustice. But that is what forgiveness is. So we think forgiveness is great. Thank God that some of you may struggle with receiving this forgiveness, but some of us may struggle, struggle in extending this forgiveness. The very grace that we receive, we refuse to extend to others. Are there people or, or, or persons in your life that you're withholding this from? Now, I'm, I'm not saying rush it. But I am saying being intentional and confronting if there are places in your heart and life that you're refusing to do the thing that Jesus did, that he calls us to do. Acts 7.60 says this. This is how I know he wants us to do it, because Stephen did it. Acts 7.58, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we would then know as Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out again with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We receive forgiveness, and then we extend it because of the relationship and love and security we have with the Father. So I don't know what the Lord is calling you to do today, but I, I want you to, to, to do whatever he's calling you to do. It may be to repent of sin in your own heart and life. It may be to, to think more correctly about how God sees you, that his disposition is one of love. Maybe that you need to reconcile with some friends or family. Whatever God's calling you to do, I invite you to do that as we close. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love for us. And it is only out of that love and security that we can overcome shame and guilt and all of our defaults. Lord, help us not to hide from our sin. Help us to confess it. God, I, there are things I'm sure that I don't even know about that, that each day that I do that requires forgiveness. 
and I'm sorry. And I pray, Lord, that um, I pray, God, that you would help me. Help me to receive that forgiveness and to extend it as well. Help us to love even our enemies, those that are coming against us. Help us to pray for them. I pray, God, for those that, that are struggling with reconciliation. I pray that you would help them. You would prompt them not to, um, to just let a sleeping bear lie, but, but to approach it in love and humility. I bring reconciliation among us. In Jesus' name I pray.